Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This variant is insubordinate, stubborn, unpredictable. You need the god of mischief. Just death, destruction, the literal ends of worlds. Change. Change. Maybe Loki wants to mix it up. Is that possible? You can change. I am Loki, and I am burdened with glorious purpose. Hello and welcome to uh, episode six of Still Watching Loki, but not our last episode of Still Watching Loki. I'm Vinny Fair, senior writer Joanna Robinson, and joining me is... I am Vanity Fair correspondent Anthony Bresnikan. Oh, Anthony Bresnikan is here. Uh, so we are, we are switching up the order of the podcast. We're doing things a little differently here in our last sort of full episode of the podcast um we've got some fun friends joining this week richard is once again often gay perry uh oh no he's in Cannes. he's not in paris anyway he's in <laughs> france um but uh we've got some we've got the great alan seppenwall uh from rolling stone magazine fantastic tv writer here to talk to me i think i want to make him talk to me about like loki as a tv series mm. um more so than though he's he's a he's a nerdy comic but mm-hmm. guy, he can get he can get nerdy. So, so you don't have the Richard, but you have a Richard. It's true. We also have Richard E. Grant, classic <laughs> Loki himself. And we're gonna leave that towards the end of the episode because it's one of those interviews that's like a little silly that it's on this episode because obviously he's not in the finale. We didn't talk about the finale at all. I hadn't seen it, but folks, am I gonna pass up a chance to talk to Richard E. Grant? I am Who not. Would? Who are would? you gonna you'd, pass you'd up a to chance insane. to listen to him? You are not. So it's just going to be like a fun little treat for you at the end of the episode. And then we've got a couple great interviews for our wrap up episode that we're going to do after this. So we're going to take a little time. I'm going to get a little sleep. You guys are going to send us your emails, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. And we're going to answer all your questions. Talk to some fine folks who worked on the show. 
and wrap it all up in one more episode after this. So this is the penultimate still watching Loki episode. Anthony Breskin, before we get started on anything, we've got yeah. some emails. I have some thoughts. Okay, but I, Joe, but wait. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> before we get to that, I have to shout you out a little bit uh, for the listeners here, because I know listeners are also readers. Uh, Joanna is walking wounded right now on the podcast. <laughs> she has been up for easily more than 24 hours. She stayed up and watched Loki at midnight. She did this amazing write-up. I would suggest every... I. I been I you know binged it I I I I tore through it right before we did this chat because I'm not feeling a hundred percent I've got a little bit of sniffles so I crashed early but I woke up early and Joe had already created this amazing document full of uh, awesome gifts and uh, and insights so go read that pause us and then come back uh, you did an amazing job Joanna and I am. I feel uh I feel like uh I feel like I I feel like you've been manning the time desk or whatever it is that uh, <laughs> that we see at the end whatever you want to call that office with all the windows you've been there forever and I feel like I just walked through one of the portals but I'm really happy to be here talking about it with you. That's so funny. I was thinking maybe that together you and I could rule the TVA. Yeah. So uh hey. that's the analogy I was going to go for. But uh thank you so much. That was really really sweet. We're all um, villains here, Joanna. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so if I sound uh delirious, it's because I am. No, I think I think this is going to be a fun episode. So I wanted to start by asking you, I mean, since you've read that piece that I wrote that's up mm-hmm. on com right now. Um you know how I feel about the episode, but I want to know how you feel about this. Are you up on it? Did it leave you cold? How are you feeling? I loved it. I also felt like victory, <laughs> glorious purpose, because you and I, many of our predictions came true on this one. And I can't say that was accurate on WandaVision. <laughs> but, I mean, I definitely had plenty, 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 plenty wrong uh, thoughts and feelings about Loki, but I wasn't mad about it at all because uh, I loved the episode. Um, but I think you were the one who was like, I definitely think it's Kang. And I was like, I don't think they're going to do Kang the whole episode. I think an end of credits. And then the episode started. I was like, oh, it's oh, it's the Kang show. Okay, here we go. Kang so uh, And Miss Minutes proved to be the spy villain that we believed she was. A little shady. A little shady, Miss mm-hmm. Minutes. Uh, yeah, so we're going to talk about all of that, um, but I, I kind of want to do this a little bit in in a specific order. So we're going to get to... Kang is what I'm calling that character, even though he was yeah. never referred to as such in the show. Um, he's called, what, He Who Remains? Um, Which is creepy, this- and I love that he goes, ooh, isn't that creepy? Like, I love that... <laughs> How self-aware this Kang is. Uh, But he, you know, this is a version of Kang the Conqueror, a character we've talked about a lot on this podcast, played by the wonderful Jonathan Majors, and we are going to talk about that a lot, for sure. But I want to actually just start and get out of the way the other part of the episode, which is a very little bit of screen time, which is what Mobius and Ravana and uh, B-15 are up to um, in this episode. which I think is sort of like the weakest. It feels like they just really undernourished that in order to just feed this other part. And I'm not mad because I love the episode, but like if, you know, if, if you're asking me like, and how did they wrap up everything for Mobius and Ravana? And I'm like, eh, they just they, sort of kind of did it. So what, I mean, what do you think about all of that TVA stuff? They did not. I mean, I think they aggressively didn't wrap it up. It was like, we got a little bit of, you know, like we found out what the pen meant, I guess. I guess. You know, <laughs> but good eye on you. As soon as they showed that in the previously on, I was like, ah, 
Joanna knew about the pen and previously <laughs> on is tipping its hat to us. Um, uh, yeah, that, uh, undernourished, I think, is a good way of describing it, but not unsatisfying. To me, it felt more like, especially given the fact that at the very end of the episode, we get the uh, the official stamp that there will be a Loki season two. I think mm-hmm. if I didn't know that, I would be like, yeah, where are they going with this Ravana right. Mobius right. stuff? But I think clearly they were leaving that. You know, sometimes you tell a story and you 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 deliberately leave tracks of narrative in order for uh, uh, to be explored in the next story, and I think that's still something that uh, it. I, I felt like I got enough resolution that uh, I, I was okay. I'm okay holding off for a year or two till we get Loki season two. Yeah, we don't have like a ton of information about the when and why for of that, but there there was you know, the earliest report that there was going to be a season two was that I can find is on comic book resources in November of last year. This had been sort of soft announced, right? Like Michael Waldron signed an overall deal with Disney. And part of that whole thing was that they wanted him for Loki season two. Uh, And so November 20th, something like that, or November 2020, I suppose, uh, is, is when the CBR article goes up. And in that CBR article, there's a link to like production weekly or something where they talked about January 2022 as a start of production on Loki. Mm. So that would be like a good long while. But I mean, they've got a lot of stuff lined up that they're working on in between. And the other thing I want to say about that is like, I, we know, for example, that Jonathan Majors is going to be in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Uh, there's also just some other ripples that we can definitely talk about that seem like they're going to touch other shows and other films that are upcoming. So it's not like we're going to press pause on this disaster and then pick it up exactly in season two, because it's going to ripple out onto other properties in the MCU. So, but I, but I, I hear what you're saying. Like, it doesn't bother me at all that, you know, Ravana leaving feels very much like a cliffhanger because this is a season, not series finale of an ongoing story. So, you know, Tune in next time <laughs> to find out what Ravana is up to. But to me, like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but so like Miss Minutes comes and she brings Ravana some files and she mm-hmm. says, he thinks these would be useful for you. And Ravana mm-hmm. reads them and she decides to go off in pursuit of something. And to me, it feels very like Biff Tannen getting the sports almanac uh, in Back to the Future mm-hmm. 2 and going, she's going somewhere in time to find a Kang and ally herself with him to get a taste of some free will, which puts her on track for her comic book role, which is like a Kang consort and like, uh, you know, partner in crime. So is that, is that your read on what we saw? Yeah, that was a trail of breadcrumbs sent to be scattered by Miss Minutes and lead her to a certain a certain destination, I guess, or a yeah. point in time. Uh, it's funny. She's in pursuit of free will, but she's just completely following the, uh, she's been hooked like a fish, you know, and is being <laughs> reeled in. So yeah. not exactly free will when you're getting pulled in like that. Um, she, you know, you did a lot in your write up that I just mentioned, uh, that I thought was wonderful, like comparing this to lost and drew some comparisons. Some I noticed, some I didn't. So I was, I was really impressed with that, and and then there's a Doctor Who shout out in there too, and I the character from pop culture that uh, 
this version uh, of Ravona reminds me of is uh, Nadine from uh, Stephen King's The Stand. Oh, okay, if hit you, me. Yeah. If you, you've, have you read that book? Or I have, or... but it's been a little while, so please. So if you remember me her, she yeah. was the one who like she's in the camp of the good people, like the folks who are following Mother Abigail, who have sort of like pure and pure intentions. They're not perfect, but then like the people who are sort of selfish and and cruel, like. Uh, that they end up going to the the path of uh they go to Las Vegas to find uh this dark figure the walking dude the uh, um Randall named Randall Flag and he wants her as his as the word you used was consort right like he wants her to be his the mother of his of his spawn he's a, he's demonic so he can't really say he's going to have a child but he wants to reproduce and his heir is going to be She's going to be the mother. She's going to be like the uh, the dark version of a of like a Virgin Mary type mm-hmm. figure, you know, mm-hmm. from Catholicism. And um, and uh, you know, the interesting, the tragic thing about her character is that she doesn't want this. She doesn't really want it. She wants to be free, right? And yet she feels this pull toward this destiny. Uh, and that's what Ravona reminded me of is that she's she's. She, saying all the right things right like we deserve to be free we should i want to know who's running who's really running things i want to be independent but she is completely taking the bait every time and i think uh you know when i say there's a comparison i think it's not that i i feel waldron is you know is poaching from the stand i think it's instead writers who have good insight into human nature often you know, there are these sort of repeated patterns in storytelling yeah. because human beings are that way. It's yeah. it's not that you have any special foresight when something happens that see that 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 that's familiar to us through a TV show or a book. It's that the writers know human nature and they know in certain types of situations how people behave. And I think that's what we have here: is she's the person who uh, outwardly projects a lot of confidence, but inwardly uh, she's 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 gravitating toward. Uh, uh, she, she's moving toward that thing that's pulling her, you know, she's not well, actually yeah. resisting. Yeah. And I wish we had gotten a little bit more of her, uh, you know, teacher persona, uh, like who she was before the TVA. Cause you know, if she was sort of, she seems a little like meeker and a little, you know, she's wearing like a, a lovely little flower dress and stuff like that. It stands in stark contrast to sort of the authoritarian uh, version of her in the TVA. So it's like, yeah, she's found her glorious purpose. Yeah. Uh, she's found a, a path to walk. And I, and I, I think it's interesting. Uh, it just, as, as we both agree, feels a little underfed in general. Yeah. Um, Nadine was also yeah. a teacher in, in the stand, by the way, is another parallel. Oh, so, nice. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, there's not much more I want to say about that. I mean, like we didn't get Mobius on the jet ski, but maybe we'll get that in season two. We still don't know who Mobius was before all this. I'm not clinging to my Loki theory at all. I'm just saying we don't know who who he is. So, you know, that's a tune in for season two to find out Mobius' yeah. backstory if we get it. You know, sort of thing. Interesting thing to leave behind. Tune in for season two to see how the uh, uh, how the um, jet ski pays off. But also tune into season two to see how the rings on the table pay off. Yeah. <laughs> do you think do the rings mean something, or was that just merely a well, reminder in that moment of him for her? I think so, but also I think what they're trying to establish here is that like Ravana has this like glorious mm-hmm. purpose, this path that she's decided she's gonna go on. 
but she is still vulnerable to some influence from Mobius, right? She doesn't prune him. So, like, I feel like if we follow her story down the line, there's a possibility that if things get out of control, like, only Mobius will be able to stop her sort of thing. Yeah. What do you think she's actually drawn to? She says it's, I'm trying to find the, I think think it's power too. Power, yeah. Like, we we use the word consort, but actually it's queen, right? Yeah, yeah. I I regretted saying consort as soon as I said it. No, the consort consort isn't anything sleazy. It's just, just, you know, you're like a... like a gangster's mall or yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, I, want, uh, I want to give her something a little bit more lofty than that. I agree. So yeah, she's not, like, not a concubine or something like that. No, no, like, no, no, no. That's not what I meant. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, and there is a possibility that even though we do see Jonathan Major's face on the giant statue at the end, like maybe the power behind the throne in all of that, we'll get to that, but maybe it's actually Ravana. Like, Maybe she goes and finds a king variant that she can manipulate, and maybe she's actually the one in charge. We don't know. I we'll think find she, out. I think she's being positioned as a bad guy, and there there'll be some yeah. effort to redeem her. But I think she is going to go. Uh, what is the phrase that uh, Jonathan Majors uses? Like we've crossed the threshold. Like yeah. Oh my I god. I think there'll be a moment okay. where she crosses a threshold and really can't come back. Um, you know, she'll go into Lady. Macbeth territory. I was going to say uh, dark, dark Sansa in my Game of Thrones yeah. Uh, parlance. Yeah, no. Um, I, I, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens to her. I, I want to move over to to the Kang stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to start with this email we got um before the finale from Glenn, and it was real. I was really glad that I read this before the finale because it helped me um grasp the finale better. Glenn starts this email. Uh, hello, classic Joanna. Crocodile Anthony and poor pruned Richard. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He said, there's been a lot of talk about Kang over the course of the show, but I thought it was interesting that you haven't mentioned one of his key elements of his character, his multiple incarnations that show up and occasionally work at cross purposes to each other. A very brief history of Kang. Spoilers. (laughs) Comic book spoilers. Uh, He is born Nathaniel Richards in a far future utopia and is possibly a descendant of Mr. Fantastic Reed Richards, his father, also named Nathaniel Richards, who is also a time traveler, and or Dr. Doom, who is also a time traveler. Future Nathaniel Richard, bored in paradise, decides to conquer not only his current era, but the past and future via Dr. Doom's rediscovered time machine. He is the ancient Egyptian pharaoh Rama Tut, who is defeated by the Fantastic Four, the Scarlet Centurion, who used psychological and technological manipulation to stop the rise of superhumans, and Kang the Conqueror, who is a classic enemy of the Avengers. Importantly, two of his incarnations, his first and his last, stand in contrast to his traditional MO of being a temporal warlord, Iron Lad and Immortus. And so he goes on to talk about how Iron Lad, who we've talked about a little bit about in context of young Avengers, um, and Immortus are, are sort of... Uh, defending against the negative influence of these more warlike uh, conqueror characters. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what we see here is like, I'm not saying the he who remains is a good guy. He calls himself a villain, right? But he's positioning himself as the lesser devil of uh, your options of devils here. So, mm-hmm. I mean, like, what do you think of this idea of, we get to meet this one. We're just going to call him Kang because it's easier. And that's just what we're going to do. We meet this Kang played by Jonathan Majors and we get this threat of all these other Kangs. How does all of this work for you? Yeah. I I mean, yes, uh, Glenn, you're, you're right. But we did mention that uh, Kang is a Nexus being. And in the comics, that means 
in all the various timelines, sometimes you exist, sometimes you don't, but Nexus beings are like, they're, they're a vein that runs through all the timelines. So there's a Kang, and there's a Kang for every time. And, uh, uh, so we did, we did mention that. Well, I, did... I thought when we talked about Nexus beings, though, that we talked about how they're all the same across all the timelines. Yeah, I think he's not that different. He... I, I mean, he mentions their variations and all that, and some are meaner uh, th- than others, but, uh, but um, I think they all look like Jonathan Majors. At least the little like putty versions of them on the deck. That's what I mean. Is they like weren't Majors. They yeah. weren't as as varied as Loki's. You know? No, no Gator King. As no far Gator as King. Yeah. yeah. So and even he was like, oh, we would meet each other and be like, nice nose, right? Like, yeah, so your yeah. face, your face is the same. Yes. Yeah. So I think it's like you know they at least somewhat closely align. Um, and I also think that's I think that bears out. Like he is. I think he's a dastardly character, and I also just loved, loved, loved um, Jonathan Major's performance. We talked about our, our eagerness to see him on the show and or to see his version of Kang. And if you remember, like I was like, he's interesting casting for a villain because he's so charming, like he's so magnetic. I really every time I see him on screen, it's not that he plays the same character, but he he has a kind of. Uh, I mean, it has charisma. It's almost not big enough a word. I just love watching him. And what I really enjoyed about this performance is he dialed up the mania. Like, he was a manic character. Uh, uh, and it, rather than, like, some sort of, like, stoic, scary, you know, ominous character, which I was... Whenever you see somebody rendered in sculpture, and I, I do think they put some characteristics of him in the, or that central timekeeper right. image... Um, uh, but, uh, but, you know, whenever you, uh, uh, you see somebody rendered in a sculpture, they're always a little more ominous than they are in real life. But I love that he was like munching an apple again. Oh, yeah. talk, talk about like, uh, y- y- you know, Judeo Christian, yeah. uh, scripture, like, uh, you know, the apple thing just felt very garden of Eden to me too. I don't know if you. Oh, felt totally. That yep. Yeah. I have that in my notes. Apple, <laughs> snake, garden, all of that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, because we get the temptation, right? First for Loki and Sylvia when they walk in, we get Miss Minutes come up and she offers them, you know, you get to have only happy memories of your childhood, Sylvie, and you, mm-hmm. Loki, will have gotten to, de- you know, you could defeat Thanos. And there, there's one really touching part of that brief little exchange, which is that um, when she's talking about that, you can have the Infinity Gauntlet, you can have the throne. But what's playing on the score is that Ragnarok theme. Mm-hmm. And I think what he's thinking about is like, I can save Asgard if I do this. Not right. like glorious power, but like I can save my homeland that's destroyed. Um, but the Apple thing, I think, is like, if I'm, if I'm Michael Waldron, I'm, I'm cheering because whenever you write something creatively and you build little illusions in... And nobody picks them up because they just gla- glean across the surface. Like, I think w- this is what happens when Adam and Eve don't take the temptation. When they reject the temptation, the devil says, well, then I'll eat the apple, right? I, <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think that's well, I what mean, he led and, them yeah. to. And, was... and we should say that this episode is uh, written by Michael Waldron and Eric Martin. Oh, yes. And um, that something Waldron told me in the initial interview that I did with him is that, you know, he got plucked out of the writer's room to go do... Doctor Strange. And so I asked him, I was like, well, who was, if something needs to be changed in the script, who's writing it if you're working on Doctor Strange? And he said, Eric Martin. 
So, uh, and uh, collaboratively, like, but Eric Martin was the guy there sort of working on stuff. And something that Kate Heron told me very interestingly is that they did a lot of work over the pandemic pause to change in Titan scripts. And now I'm going to say something and I'm going to preface it. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're someone who likes to post on Reddit, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I love that you listen to this podcast. But sometimes what happens is if I say something, it gets popped up on Reddit as Vanity Fair's Joanna Robinson report. So I'm just going to preface what I'm about to say with this is not Joanna Robinson from Vanity Fair reports. However, if you write that, I can't control it. That's whatever. But I'm just saying this for the record. That is not what this is. But I will say I've heard through some back channels. So this is not a reported concrete thing. This is a nebulous rumor. Are your journalistic instincts like freaking out right now? Any yeah, stuff, all my <laughs> circuits are shorting out. I'm like, I have heard that Kang, pre-pandemic, that Kang was actually going to be a post-credits appearance. Hmm. Um, and that they changed it, maybe partially. I don't know the reason why. It could be because... Um, they decided they wanted a season two of the show, which they seem to have decided maybe around November. Um, or it could be that they saw what Jonathan Majors could do and they were like, oh, we want more of this, please. Um, but if you think about, I mean, that is a wild rewrite. If that is true, if Kang was just supposed to be a post credits, then I was trying to imagine like what the episode is without Kang in it. And I think it's a longer temptation sequence with Miss Minutes because there is a sequence from the trailers where you see Loki on the throne of Asgard, clad in gold. And we never see it in the show. And they showed, they put it even in the most recent trailer. So, like, it was footage they definitely shot. That, and so I'm thinking, like, Miss Minutes would have shown them what their life was. You know, like, oh, just an extended seduction of, of Christ sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or temptation of Christ. Um, that's just pure conjecture. But, like, the idea that they rewrote it so that instead of appearing at the end of credits, Jonathan Major's going to pop in and monologue exposition for almost the entire episode i i almost can't believe it but i my source is pretty good so i'm i'm just thinking about it but like uh this episode for what it's worth does not work at all if jonathan majors isn't as extraordinary as he is in this role right can you imagine if they had a le- if they uh you know cast a lesser actor Marvel is really good casting track record, but let's say they cast kind of a dud and we have to just sit and listen to him explain things to us for an hour in the Loki finale. Like imagine that reality, Anthony Bresnigan. You know, what's funny is about uh, the thing I will say thematically that fits into the storyline with his performance is that he's, um, there's a bit of a meta thing going on here, right? At one point, the character lays down the script for the episode we're watching. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, I mean, it's technically like a transcript of just what's going to happen, but really it's the script, right? Like, it's it's what we're seeing. And he's like, I know what's coming. And what I think is extraordinary about Jonathan's performance is that even though he's reading lines and delivering a performance that was written, it feels out of control to me. Right, mm-hmm. it feels very much like a live wire, and how are we going to get this? <laughs> how are we going to pin this down, right, without electrocuting ourselves? Or, uh, 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 
you know, how are we gonna, how are we gonna, how do you, how do you capture this thing? Like this guy well, is, yeah. And I, I think it's because all of his choices are so surprising. Like I've rewatched the episode, you know, all the way through twice and like bits here and there a couple times, uh, over this course of this sleepless night. Yeah. And, uh, I, just every line reading, I'm like, this is such a surprising take. And is like, and when he does physically like hopping up on the desk or the way he gestures or like all this sort of stuff, it's just wild and fascinating. And for me, and, and it reminds me a bit about, of, of Owen Wilson as Mobius. Cause Owen Wilson also has just like very surprising delivery of lines. That's, that's his trademark. Is you don't really know how he's going to deliver a line, and it's going to be fun. Um, do, you know, do you know who it yeah. reminded me of? Uh, yeah. It, it, one of the all-time greatest performance in movie history is Denzel Washington in Training Day. Ooh, and if you yeah. think about, like, um, Ethan Hawke, like, he's, he's the... He's the plain vanilla cake that these purple roses are. Uh, uh, Denzel's purple roses are scattered across because he's like, you know, he's she's kind of kind of restrained and he's trying to learn things. But uh, but Denzel in that movie was just like, you know, King Kong ain't got shit on me. Like he's just like so over the top and and then dialed back and then tender. Like he's so unexpected and and that's what this Kang reminded me of a bit. Like he's the bad guy, but he's also like enchanting. Like he's fascinating and he's fun he's fun to watch even though he's we know what he's doing is chaotic and destructive you know he's zipping around he's um he's vanishing he's dodging attacks Uh, he's having the time of his life while being the bad guy and when he's like we're all villains here like i just i just like had to laugh and like like it's so hypocrite murderer like you know when i was like it's true because i just rewatched the pilot i know like sylvie's stabs to death a bunch of TVA agents and I'm just sort of like Sylvie my 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 babe here um mm-hmm. uh, the the uh, but he's uh, loving it he's like yeah no the per- the person that I was watching with like, Denzel in in Train Day is a great comparison but the person mm-hmm. that I was watching with when they go up the elevators and you see, it, there's all this marble shot through with gold and I'm going to talk about that mm-hmm. in a second we got an email about that but like the elevators go up and they open and the person I was watching with was like oh devil's advocate and it's like oh, yes. Chino monologuing in a penthouse in New York. You know what I mean? That's another that's another great manic villain performance that you just can't take your eyes off oh, of. You know what I mean? Great comparison. But both ultra bad guys. Like mm-hmm. both terrible. I mean, mm-hmm. literally the devil in that case. Mm-hmm. But like the it's the it's the allure of the bad guy. And you know, you mentioned like I think it was it in your write up or maybe you mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, like like Jonathan Majors, like chewing through the scene, and chewing the scenery is often like a pejorative, like that's a criticism of a performance. But let's be honest, like, like if you're if you can chew it, then it's great. I mean, he's literally eating through most of the scene, right? Like he's chewing on the apple, like he's literally chewing through the scene, and um, and I think when it works, it it's actually. It's- oh yeah. Well, I mean, we, I think we use a similar phrase in in regards to Richard E. Grant. Like Richard E. Grant is another actor who can chew up scenery, and you're just delighted for him having that meal. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. just perfectly calibrated. And I think that. Um, so what I'll say is, we did get a couple emails from some folks who didn't love the finale. And here's what I think: I think if this Jonathan Majors performance isn't enchanting you the way that it enchanted us, I can see not liking this finale. Like, but I was like. I was buzzing. I was having the time of my life. And it was interesting because with the three of them in that room, 
and especially once they cross that threshold and they're off script. Um, it reminded me one of the influences that Waldron talked to me about at the beginning of the season was in Glorious Bastards, like that tavern scene, that long, tense, mm. you don't know what's going to happen. And that's how I felt. I felt so tense. I'm like, I, I think our Loki, Tom Hiddleston's Loki, is not going to do anything wild. He's actually the clearest head in the room. But Sylvie's a live wire, and Kang is a live wire, and I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know. I genuinely didn't, you know, and, and I, had th- I had a ball with that. So that's how I felt. Well, um, that, you yeah. know, you bringing up Inglorious Bastards, like, that's, a, that's another great comparison. But I would also say, you know, Denzel in Training Day, but Christoph Waltz in, in Inglorious Bastards, where he is in that opening scene of the movie when he goes to the little farmhouse where people are hiding mm-hmm. you know Monsieur beneath the, yeah 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 like he is having the time of his life and there's something about a villain who really loves it that is it's 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 mesmerizing it's hypnotic it, it kind of it reminded me a little bit of something uh, that mark ruffalo told me in an interview I think it was on the set of uh, Age of Ultron. Mm-hmm. And he said one of the problems with Hulk as a standalone movie character is that Hulk never is that Hulk doesn't want Bruce Banner to be there and Bruce Banner doesn't want Hulk to be there. And it's hard to have a character that connects with audiences who doesn't want to be in the movie. You know, it's hard it's not just a little bit of reluctance like the whole point of the character uh Bruce and Hulk to suppress each other and um he's like that that's the thing they haven't cracked yet and i think he's right it makes the character a little bit of a drag and so when you have a villain who's not like oh i'm conflicted i have to do this instead he's like i love this i beat out all the other kangs i'm kang prime baby like and he is um but he's also like i'm tired and i'm done but also like but what's going to happen? But <laughs> I mean, he's tired and he's done, yeah. but it's a loop, yeah. right? Yeah, it's a loop. Exactly. And that's another thing you got right, Joanna, is you said maybe this battle for supremacy is not in the past, but is actually in the future. And you were absolutely right about that. Right? Yeah. Because Kang is from, what is it? The 31st century. The 31st century. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, but it's like another, uh, okay, so we're throwing, we're, we're putting a lot on Jonathan's shoulders here, you know, Denzel, Christoph Waltz, but I would say, and this is the pur- one of the biggest blocks of all, is like, um, uh, Orson Welles in Citizen Kane, a character who starts out as a good guy and devolves into mm. everything he says he despises, everything he stands against, and yet, the more evil Kane become, becomes, the more, like, manic and, 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 and and energized and and watchable he is and so i feel like jonathan really captured that with uh with this performance is that uh once you take the brakes of your own morality off of the car you are you are full speed ahead and i just i cannot I love this performance so much. Me too. Me too. And and um, listen, if you did, if you listen, if if you're listening and you watched and you didn't, like that, that's fine. But something that that is even more delightful to contemplate. Uh, okay, so so we know that we're gonna get Kang. Like Quantum Mania doesn't come out till like 2023, and and a lot of the repercussions of what we're seeing here um, are are going to ripple out 
into various things. Like we presume multiverse of madness. We have to wonder if the upcoming animated, what if, mm-hmm. uh, is just, you know, these, which is going to be these rifts on these Marvel characters is just going to be actually like a tour through the multiverse of madness, et cetera. Um, all this sort of stuff, which is to say that like Jonathan majors is in it for the long haul. And mm-hmm. not only that, but like, we're going to get to see him play different flavors of Kang. Cause he's good. They're yes. going to give us all the variants. So like Jonathan majors, who's such a nimble performer, who's so good and so surprising and everything that he does is going to get to show us not just this great thing that he did, but like all the other t- tools in his little, like, you know, Swiss army knife. And, uh, uh, like I gotta say, like I, Brolin did a great job with Thanos, but like I, I messaged someone while I was watching this. I was like, "This is better. This is so much better than Brolin." Sorry, it is. I like, I love, I love this. So I'm all in. Um, let me zoom back to the um, the I promised I would talk about the marble. We see this like you know this this marble shot through with gold sort of mm-hmm. vibe all through the Citadel. It's his his temp pad is made of it. His the little figures on the desk are made of it. All it's this. This a uh, constant material in the place, uh, and we got a couple emails about this actually. But I'm going to read the most recent one that came through. Sorry, recency bias. This is from Abigail, and she says one particular part of the set design of the Citadel in the Loki finale was that were the veins of gold throughout the structure, mm. including windows. I feel certain that it's a reference to Kintsugi, yes. also known as Kintsukuroi. I'm sorry, the Japanese art of using gold to repair a broken object thereby making it even more beautiful. It makes me wonder if this is actually a place for hope going forward with the multiverse, that when the chaos that Sylvie unleashed is reined in again, that whatever the timelines look like going forward, it will be better than the single, inflexible, sacred timeline that has been experienced so far. So that that's from Abby. I want to say something really quickly before you before you jump on this, which is I learned about this from Star Wars because the Raylos taught me because when Kylo Ren puts mm-hmm. his mask back together, it's not like seamless. It's got those red veins red through veins, it. Yeah. And that's when I learned about this whole idea. Uh, what do you want to say about it? Oh, no. As you were reading that, I was like, oh, it's like Kintsugi. Um, because, and I learned about it just slightly ahead of Star Wars because it's a plot point on uh, the man in the high castle. Mm hmm. And, which is also a time variant show, right? This is an alternate dimension where Japan and Germany, the Axis powers, were victorious in World War II. So, what does the world look like if they won? And there's a character uh, who is uh, part of the Japanese government that oversees the western portion of North America, who uh, he ends up tra- he ends up traveling into a, a timeline. Uh, that's different. That's the one, I believe it's the one where uh, that we, we happen to be in, <laughs> where America and uh, England and the Allied powers won that war. And he has a feud with his son, and they break a, a, a special cup that has like a memento quality to it, and he, he's, he repairs it with Kintsugi. And I, I was not familiar with that technique or that tradition, and, and that was just like a couple of months before the uh, uh, Rise of Skywalker. But I think I thought that same thing when I was watching this is that it doesn't look like it doesn't look like natural marbling. It looks like repair work. Mm-hmm. It looks I, like something I think it's that was beautiful. Uh, I think yeah. I think all the VFX work uh, in this finale were like completely beautiful. Like the shattering, the shattered glass effect of the timeline splintering 
I thought looked incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I haven't slept. So um, if you guys disagree, let me know. <laughs> um, also, uh, I want to talk a little bit about, about Sylvie's choice here. Um, so Harrison uh, Fourth, not to be confused with Harrison Ford, wrote in to us mm. uh, to talk about the comparison to the film Seven. Uh, and and I want to say to Harrison, I promise you, I wrote my article on VF.com this morning before I read your email. But uh, basically, my article on VF.com covers this. Harrison's email covers this, this idea. And they've been talking all season about the David Fincher film Seven. Spoilers for the end of David Fincher Seven, if you haven't seen it, uh, came out in 1995. What's in the box, etc. But the end of that film is about the villain emotionally manipulating the hero into killing him. And knowing that it helped me, it helped flavor my read of what Kang is doing here because he kind of seems like, kill me, don't kill me. I don't really care. But he also has that moment where he's like, Sylvie, do you think you can trust him? Can you really trust anyone? And then that's what sort of splinters the, the Loki Alliance here is the trust factor. And he's the one who planted that seed with her. And he's the one who exploits that. And that's what eventually causes her to kill him. But that's like, that's in seven, at least that's his plan the whole time is to, is to sort of incite Brad Pitt wrath and, and get him to kill him. And so, uh, you know, Ken claims he doesn't care. Kill him. Don't kill him. It doesn't matter to him, but he's also like, I'm tired. <laughs> I want to go. So what, like, what do you think of that, of that seven comparison there? I think it's completely accurate in that in seven. It's like, that's his art, I guess, you know, mm. this is his, manifesto is that he's going to make uh you know show humanity to be inherently corrupt by showing that even the person trying to stop him can be uh induced <laughs> into doing his bidding and uh yeah and that's what makes 7 such a disturbing film the bad guy wins even though he's technically defeated he's deceased but in this i think it's the same thing now there's there's a, a technique to Kate Heron's direction where you, you notice how occasionally the camera starts sideways or upside down and then it tilts to, you know, proper orientation, you know, gravitational up and down orientation. And uh, to me, that feels very, um, it feels very much like a, uh, an hourglass. Right? Mm. So you turn an hourglass upside down to start it going. And then it goes through its process. And then you have to turn it again. And to me, the death of this Kang, of uh, he who survived. What is it? He who survived? He who remains. He who remains. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm mixing up Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> the boy who lived. Uh, it's um, he who remains has to go. In order for there to be the conflict that leads to he who remains ruling for so long. Mm. Right? And also, we talked about this as a potential motivation for Kang earlier in the season. Maybe Ravana is the end game in some way. You know what I mean? And maybe this is like how he gets to go meet Ravana or something like that. I totally. Don't know. I just think this is the turning of the hourglass. Mm hmm. That when she stabs him, that's the turning of the hourglass that resets it. And yeah, and as you goes, mentioned, like yeah, Kate keeps doing this like turning the camera all the way around thing. And he's um, and he yeah. says he literally says to them, 
you know, he, he fast forwards like, yeah, you, you know, I, I, either way, I'll end up right back here. He says, Eventually. reincarnation, baby. <laughs> Eventually, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, so I feel like that's what's happening is that he's just set, he's just turning the hourglass and it's just going to play out again. Mm-hmm. In, there we go in, again in an infinite loop, and so he's not really dying; it's just starting over again. Yeah. Um. All right. So let me uh, let me read a dissenting opinion uh, since yeah. we we gush so much in Jonathan Majors' favor. This is not uh, against Jonathan Majors, but uh, this is from Mom. I I she's Irish and she has an accent on one of her vowels, which makes me convinced I'm gonna mispronounce her name. But I'm going to go with Mare. But if it's wrong, I apologize. Um, She writes, while I know who Kang is, even though I don't think they named him, I think the introduction of him in the last episode is really cheating the mystery box element. I feel anyone who watches all the shows and movies but doesn't listen to podcasts or read comics will not know who he is and will not have any emotional link to him or any idea uh, of even what kind of person being he is. I was also confused by the Ravana exit and expected a scene showing where she had gone. I assumed into the fray with Sylvie. The show didn't end properly, and I guess the big reveal was that there's going to be a second season. At this point, I've had the same feeling about all three of the Marvel shows. I was really enjoying them until the last episode. I'd hate to think of Loki as just some long trailer backstory for the next Doctor Strange movie, but without a decent ending, it's beginning to feel that way. So I want to address a couple points here. I Like, her, init- her initial point about... um it feeling like a cheat was exactly my argument as to why I didn't think King was going to show up because it felt like it would be uh, uninteresting, inert, dramatically. And I think, as I've said <laughs> a couple times now, the performance is really what saves that sort of inert premise. But I think what also saves it is the idea, and, and someone tweeted this at me, so I'm sorry I'm not giving them proper credit, but this idea that like is it's about Kane. Mo- King monologuing, but it's also this tension between Sylvie and Loki of like, what are you going to do? And what's important to you? And can we stay united? It's still emotionally about them, even as it's Kang doing his, you know, smoke and mirrors show. Um, what do you think about that? Um, uh, I, idea? Look, I think Mare is on to something. Yeah, if you're not uh, aware that Jonathan Majors is playing Kang or has been cast and announced, if you're not following the movie news of, uh, the MCU, then, yeah, I think you might go, who was that guy? You know? What was all that about? I mean, he explains it. In the, I mean, so I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of somebody who has no idea that um, who Kang is, or that he is projected to be a part of future MCU storytelling. And I think, yeah, you just get this kind of wild, kooky guy uh, at... Uh, in a, in a strange like space castle and um yeah i could see how that might leave you a little cold um but he does explain i think fairly cleanly and i love the visuals aspect of having him create the little sculptures yeah. the sand sculptures uh yeah. that that sort of detail the story all that's very cool um but i i can see how it leaves you a little bit cold I, on to play devil's advocate again to invoke that phrase. Uh, yeah. I think, I think we have, uh, I think Marvel is aware that part of the joy of the MCU is that it is a universe and it is a continuum and that so many of the viewers uh, are interested in the bigger picture and how things tie in and connect to each other. 
uh, they almost crave that revelation as a means of, uh, uh, as part of the enjoyment of what they do and what makes them different in terms of movies. So I think yeah, maybe but they're I, catering. I would say sometimes it feels elegant and sometimes it doesn't, right? Yeah. I'm not mad about it here personally because once again i think i don't know i'm just i'm just like drinking the jonathan majors kool-aid but like but in like one division when it was like three mid-credit sequence and this one's gonna set up the marvels and this one's gonna set up that or i talk about all the time with ultron being an example where i think the calibration was really off in terms of feeding the forward narrative versus feeding the story they're trying to tell us right now you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and i didn't feel that way about this episode but i but i couldn't really blame anyone who did because it absolutely is a pitch forward in the mcu Um, i want to read matt's email which kind of addresses this whole sense of an ending thing matt says absolutely love the big twist to loki's finale is that it was a tv show not a six-hour movie all along and that the post-credits scene is literally just the announcement that season two exists the way it should be for any TV series. This makes a lot of concerns people had about introducing the big bad late, about resolving stories completely, etc. seem kind of silly. The resolution to all the clues point to Kang, but they can't possibly introduce Kang on Disney Plus before the movies, being it's the Kang variant who set up the Kang the Conqueror, Anna Mortis, and all the other Kangs is so obvious in hindsight, I can't believe we didn't all guess it. So um, Matt's, Matt's sort of pitch here that like uh, it doesn't I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be asking Alan about this because you and I know a lot, but Alan knows more about TV than we'll ever learn. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, sort of like, if this just, you know, thinking about the Lost comparison, there's a lot of Lost in this finale. I go into that in my article. You can go read about that there. Probably talk to Alan about it. But like, uh, uh, you know, Lost episodes finales always ended on cliffhanger stuff. You know what I mean? Like cliffhangers are maybe in the era where shows are always concerned that they're going to get dropped. Like people don't do season finale cliffhangers as much anymore, but like that used to be such a big thing. And so I think the sense of dissatisfaction or a sense of dissatisfaction that I can really see people feeling is that underfed feeling around the TVA stuff, but it's still all pointing towards the next season, you know? Yeah. I mean, I felt like it's not, it's a mini series. It's not a, it's not a six hour movie, but it's also. Yeah. But um, you know, Marvel sometimes says that, right? They, well, they say it all the time. Yeah, yeah, it's a six yeah. hour movie. And you're like, come on guys, it's TV. Yeah. This, this is, uh, I think, you know, I liked lost a lot and certainly got a lot of enjoyment out of it. But I also feel like the, the network demand for was it like twenty two or twenty four episodes a season like totally totally resulted in it being drawn out to a degree that eventually became unsatisfying for me that like maybe I would have liked the resolution a little better if they ha- hadn't uh, had taken so long to get there it wasn't maybe worth the investment uh I I don't know maybe you know from your conversations with its uh, its creators do they feel like they wish they had less time to tell the story <laughs> like um maybe oh, it had I, been I doubt it i mean it was just it, it's six episodes right no no name? i mean lost i mean lost like do they oh do, lost do the yes people, or, <laughs> lo- who, well, who did lost do they ever wish like oh i wish we didn't have to fill that many hours of tv yes, like absolutely i mean they've said that very publicly absolutely yeah, I thought, that's what i thought uh, I sure but, I but, but at the same time i think that um 
and and Alan, so I, I host a podcast. I don't talk about it a lot because it's not a VF podcast, but I host a podcast about Lost. I'm watching Lost every week. I talk about mm-hmm. Lost all the time. It's a it's a TV it's a TV show sort of most on my brain at any given moment. And Alan has popped over on that podcast and something that he's brought up and Emily Vander like all these like really smart TV people and know that way more than I do is this idea of like with the loss of the 22, 24 episode season. Yeah, you get a con- you you don't have those like loser episodes where you're like what the hell did I just watch? But you miss some like real beautiful gems of like um there's this great up- lost episode called um Trisha Tanaka is dead that is just about the gang. I think I talked about this when we were talking about episode 3 being a filler episode where it's just the it's just the losties trying to fix a van. And like it's a beautiful episode, but it's an episode that absolutely wouldn't exist in a 10 episode season. Absolutely yeah. not. You wouldn't have room for it. So there are things you lose. But they're definitely, con- you know, concise storytelling is definitely the the name of the game these days. So mm-hmm. anyway, um, I think that's kind of most of what I want to talk about because you and I are going to have a chance again to talk some more, get some more emails. Like I said, still watching pot yeah. is where you can reach us. Uh, is there anything you else you want to make sure that we hit before we go? Yeah, I wanted to talk about the music uh, because it it's uh, it, it's it, the whole season was uh, scored by Natalie Holt. Uh, a, a British composer, and I think I would love to talk to her about Pink Floyd because the Loki theme mm-hmm. reminds me so much of Adam Hart Mother, the which has this gigantic. I think the you know when it was a record, it was like well the first, the A side of the record like was just like one sort of long suite, and it involves. Uh, uh, heavy brass, the heavy keys, I guess you could say, uh, almost like a, a triumphant march. And it was composed by uh, uh, the Pink Floyd crew, the band, as like a theme for an unmade Western. You know how Radiohead had that song called like Exit, Exit Music for a Film? Like yeah. this was considered mm-hmm. like, this would be our score for a Western that will never be made. And it's But it's like got these cosmic elements of it, these sort of mind trip elements of Pink Floyd and the uh the sort of march that we keep hearing in Loki feels very Adam Hartmother to me. Uh I don't know. I kept on need to send you the score or send you like a, a YouTube link to that song and say does this sound familiar but we'll maybe we'll talk about that a little more in the final episode. That we Yeah, do. um I think there's um you know Loki Loki gets betrayed by Sylvie mm-hmm. with a kit betrayed with a kiss. Perfect stuff, I think. Um you know, that that image of Loki stabbing someone in the back with a dagger. I love how it's sort of because there was a second you see something materializing behind him and you're like, is it a dagger? And then you're like, no, it's a doorway. OK. Oh, she grabbed the temp pad. OK. Like sort of thing. I thought that was really well done. But she pushes him through and then Hiddleston gets to do like. Sad face, Loki, heartbroken Loki, you know, put his heart out there for her, was crying, um, giving us full like Desmond and Penny on lost stuff. and um. And then, and then when he like goes into action, he decides to like run and find Mobius. This synth music kicks in, and I love the synth that Natalie Holt has used uh, in this series. I think it's is really crunchy. I don't know if crunchy is a word he used to describe synth, but that's how it feels to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, synth yeah. is usually very smooth, right? Like it's uh... yeah, but it's like it's like that dank sort of eighties, like. Not quite Vangelis, but almost sort of like, you know, and I know, I know Blade Runner is a big, uh, like Alan Parsons project kind of stuff. Uh, It's just sort of like, uh, yeah, get to work. Okay. Anyway. Um, anything else you want to talk about (laughs) before we go? That's it. 
All right. I think we did it. Uh, we're going to have Alan in to talk about some more stuff do, in just a second. Do, do you think we praise Jonathan Majors enough? Like, I don't uh, know the, if the, he knows that we like him, but, you know, maybe we'll pass a note during study hall and let him know. Oh, um, he's Citizen Kane meets <laughs> Denzel Washington meets <laughs> Pacino. <laughs> You know, you know who else? You know, one more performance we're going to throw on Jonathan Majors. Like in the pantheon of uh, of of wild, outlandish, semi malevolent figures. Remember, um, it, what was her name? Agra, the yeah, secret oh, yeah. keeper from uh, the Dark Crystal. Remember how she had all those orbs in her lair, like her observatory. And and she reminded me. He reminded me a little bit of her too, because like she's off on her own. She's ancient. She knows all the secrets, and but it's also like she's kind of crazy. <laughs> so, so when visitors come, she just seems totally deranged. Uh, I think a little bit of, throw a little bit of agra on the fire for as we uh, as we sing the praises of uh, Jonathan Majors. Uh, it's funny. I will I will add one more uh, Muppet mm-hmm. to the mix and say um, <laughs> I. It's funny because I am. Um... I just mentioned actually this on the on the on the last podcast I do. This is a second allusion to the junk lady from the labyrinth. Do you know who I'm talking about? The lady who like puts Sarah in her childhood room and then but it's just oh, junk. Yeah. <clears throat> That's what Miss Minutes was reminding me of, where she's like, We'll give you everything you want. Just stay mm. here. You two can be together on the timeline. It's fine. So he's like, It's all just a bunch of toys. Like she's like, uh-huh. it's just it's just fiction yeah. uh I, that oh nice uh, you know i uh i think about that lady a lot from labyrinth <laughs> i love labyrinth <laughs> anyway um so that uh so now that we've uh fulfilled our muppet quota um we will bid you adieu brez brez will be back next uh next episode to wrap everything up uh we've got a couple of great interviews for that episode as well uh until then anthony brezkin where can folks find your work find me writing away at vanityfair.com All right, we'll see you next time, and we'll be back in just a second with Alan Zeppenwall. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, as promised, I am back from the break with the chief TV critic, uh, from Rolling Stone and uh, the host of the Too Long Didn't Watch podcast, Alan Seppenwall. Hello. How are you? Uh, I'm tired but happy. Joanna, how are you? <laughs> tired but happy. Sounds about right. Um, you are, you like, you know, folks listening at home don't know this, but you're usually my constant companion in the wee hours of the morning to talk about Loki. Um, I'm at least on the been... East Coast. What are you, what are you still doing up when I'm up <laughs> watching these, Joanna? What is happening? 
I don't know, but I'm ready to sleep once we're once we're done talking here. Uh, but I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you for joining me. Um, I'm pleasure. especially thrilled because I know you know uh, plenty about the TV show Lost. Uh, and as I already alluded to when I was talking to my pal Anthony Bresdkin earlier in the show, there's a lot of Lost in this uh, Loki finale. Uh, how did all of that? How did, well, first of all, what do you, what were your finale thoughts overall? Let's start there. Before we I mean, I have so I have so many finale thoughts. I've I've so okay. many, but uh, the the broad overview is that this is a finale that had no business working, and yet it worked. So, right. I th- I think it sort of it does a lot of things that you really are not supposed to do, but they they paid off these gambles. Uh, that's how I feel. That uh, if it were not for Jonathan Major's performance, this episode is a mess. That's what I Oh think. my god, yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, if you get even a slightly less interesting actor yeah. to do those speeches, woof. Boy, yeah, exactly. Boy. Exactly. So, uh, so, so wildly great performance of Jonathan Majors, uh, which Brez and I definitely already gushed about. Um, so let's talk about the lost of it all. Sure, sure. Um, what, like, what struck you and, and what do you think of, like, how does it strike you when you see the fingerprints of another show on a show like this? It basically depends on a whether it's done well and b whether they kind of the, the show paying homage to another show understands what made the original show work because mm-hmm. you know as well as I do so many series have ripped off Lost in the last fifteen sixteen years very few of them have done it well and I think Correct. for the most part Michael Waldron seems to get what was special about Lost and it's not just Let's throw out a lot of questions and have a lot of weird stuff happen, although both of those things are very much a part of Loki. It's more like, how do we use these mysteries and how do we use all these crazy sci-fi components to like better understand what makes these characters tick? And so when you get... Uh, are we referring to him as Kang or He Who Remains, the Scarlet Centurion? On, on this show, we call him Kang, just for all ease. Right. All right, fine. So when Kang is going on about sort of his own history, or when Ravona is is doing her spiel about free will versus destiny with Mobius, all of those things still are tied to what we understand about the characters we already know, and to a degree about Kang himself, although he's mainly an expository device here. So mm-hmm. all, all those things and all the, the Jacob illusions and everything else, to me, felt like someone who got it and wasn't just was sort of using it as a framework without just sort of shamelessly and foolishly copying it. What about you? No, completely. I mean, I think, you know, especially right around when Lost wrapped up in the first couple years before it wrapped up, those imitators like Flash Forward or, I don't know, there's there's so many of them. Um, Like, they're like, okay, premise. And it's like, no, it's not premise. <laughs> it's character, yes. it's themes, it's, it's you know, it's characters that you care about, it's emotional connection, you know, and when you've got Tom Hiddleston just, like, dripping tears on Sofia DiMartino as he's talking about the only thing I care about is you being okay, I mean, that that is more lost to me than any other direct illusion, you know, that we see, right? That's how I feel anyway. I mean, that, that, the, the kiss, too, definitely felt a lot like several various passionate lost smooches there like they they went for it with that moment i was very impressed yeah the score swelled it was there was practically a dip and and a stab in the back all all at once 
So, uh, oh, well, yeah. you know, he, she can't trust, although maybe he can be trusted. So that's an interesting sort of tension <laughs> for season two is he has changed and she has not. Well, something that um, something that I, I think was really interesting um, uh, when you were first started giving me your impressions this morning uh, in the wee small hours of the morning. <laughs> um, well, you know, where you were talking about like if this were if there weren't a season two or if this or this that I would be I would not be happy. So my question for you is like when you're looking at a season finale. What feels like a satisfying season finale to you? Like, what do you need from it? All right. I feel like I need, if I know there's going to be another season of the show, I don't necessarily need narrative closure. I need some sort of, like, climactic element, though. It You know, so in this case, to me, it is specifically that Sylvie kisses Loki, but also that Sylvie betrays Loki. And that Loki winds up back at the TVA, now robbed of the woman he loves and also the best friend he has just made. So sort of a a bunch of things built together, Mm -hmm. and some of them paid off, and some of them are now going to have to be dealt with in season two. I didn't need, like, the whole story of the TVA resolved so long as they're doing another year of the show. Like, if if this was, like, the finale of Loki, and now the adventures of Kang and the TVA, you have to go watch Ant-Man and Wasp Quantumania, that's bad. So this... This gave me enough, yeah. I think. Well, what's interesting, I mean, like, I don't know how many, exactly how many things Jonathan Majors is going to appear in. If there are, like, infinite Kangs, then he could yes. be in everything. <laughs> um, and I wouldn't, be, I, I wouldn't be mad about it. But, like, yeah, I mean, he's going to be in Quantumania, which is in 2023. And so how many things is he going to be in between now and then is is a question I have. Um, and then, yeah, and then uh, it doesn't feel like we could pick up exactly with this plot at the start of season two, because there's so much happening in between, uh, reportedly they're not even going into production on Loki season two until January, 2022. So, which is, which is not that far from here, but anyway, I, I, uh, I have questions. So I don't know. I mean, we are all allowed to reassess how we feel about the finale once we see how the threads shoot off into the MCU. But um, I, but I, but but th- yeah. this is the thing I wrote about in, in my recap, which I believe is going live on Rolling Stone as we're talking. Which is, mm-hmm. uh, to me, my I'm I'm a comic book nerd. I love the crossovers. I love sort of the shared universe of it all. That's cool. But as I've gotten older, the thing I care about most are the individual stories. So it's great that this now ties into the multiverse. That Kang is going to be a villain elsewhere. Um, that this sort of pays off things from previous Thor movies, etc. But what I care about most when I'm watching the TV show Loki is the TV show Loki. And I want that to be a satisfying experience in and of itself. And I feel for the most part, they did that. One of the main reasons I was very like convinced that Kang would not be the big bad was that it just felt like it would not fit that mantra. It would not be satisfying for the experience of the show because you're just bringing this guy in at the last second who has not even been glimpsed before in the MCU, and certainly not on this show. But they pulled that off, and part of that is just because Jonathan Majors is amazing, but part of it is also they really leaned on the the trauma that Sylvie and Loki have been through, and the bond they've mm-hmm. developed, and some of the stuff with Mobius and Ravona. So it, again, it shouldn't have worked, they mostly made it work, and they mostly made it work within the confines of this six-episode show, regardless of where the threads go from here. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's how I feel. We've gotten emails from some folks who weren't as satisfied, and but the, from also emails from plenty of folks who loved it. 
And once again, I think if I weren't so enamored with Jonathan Major's performance, which is most of the episode, then yes. like, you know, I don't think I would have liked the episode, but I am. So, you know, I was I like had goosebumps. I loved it so much. Um the the thing I wanted to float to you and I, I talked to Brez about this a little bit, um, and I'm gonna give the same preface here that I gave in the first part, which is um this is not reported fact. This is yeah. like third hand rumor that I heard. So I'm not <laughs> reporting this officially. Okay. But something I heard was that um, <clears throat> in the pre-pandemic version of the scripts, Kang only appeared in an end of credits sequence. And then as they reworked the scripts over the pandemic, they decided, and I don't, uh, so I don't, I'm not, I, I don't know why they did this, but I have some thoughts about what could have inspired this for them to move Kang to be the, like the substance of the episode. Uh, one, they got a load of Jonathan Major's performance. <laughs> They're like, yes. we want more of that. Um, <laughs> number two, they decided around then that they want to do a second season. So they sort of truncated a lot of the sh- stuff they shot for the TVA, which like if you pull out the TVA stuff, it's very wimpy. It's very minimal. And so like I could see like maybe they shot a bunch of other stuff with Mobius, with Ravona, with B-15, et cetera, and they cut it out. I don't know. There is some stuff with Loki and Sylvie, like um, Loki on the throne of Asgard that was in the trailer that isn't in the show. So I'm wondering if like maybe that that's whole like Miss Minutes temptation sequence is longer and they see visions of themselves like that she's describing and stuff like that, like that could all have happened. Uh, But maybe they were just trying to like move pieces around to create a season two cliffhanger rather than just tease Jonathan Majors for Quantumania. Um, what do you think? About I think that? that, I mean, as, as sort of troubled as I was by the idea of bringing Lo- Kang in at the end, if you don't meet the big bad at all until the mid credit stinger, that's worse to me. Um, I mean, I don't know what the original plan was. And you know, like you say, this is third hand rumors. So mm-hmm. I don't know how far like off the reservation we want to go here, but I, I feel like as weird as this was, it's definitely a better solution from from what I'm now picturing in my head instead. Yeah, I mean, I think I, you know, and this this goes to this maybe feeds into this interview that Tara Strong gave midway through the season where she was talking about like how there's a lot more to come from Miss Minutes. And like, certainly we get some sinister Miss Minutes stuff in here, but like maybe Miss Minutes is like kind of the big bad of the finale, you know what I mean? And then you get a little Kang button at the end. Like uh, that would be an episode. Certainly could, uh, it's an episode I could certainly see coming from some folks who worked on Rick and Morty, but like um, this Kang stuff is so much better. I think, yes. Um, you know, because of this performance. And I mean, I love Tara strong. I think she's fantastic, but that's trying to envision just them talking to the floating clock for that long is not so much. What do you think the show? Oh, no, let's, let's go back to that. Um, that, Episode three, the lamentous episode, which is mostly yes. the Sylvie and Loki sort of spending time together episode. And there was a lot of kerfuffle around that episode about it being like they're not enough happen or it's uh, quote unquote filler or whatever. Right. My but eyes like, are rolling into the back of my head right now <laughs> as you say that. But like, I mean, I, I don't I don't want to, you know, grind people's nose into the dirt too much. But I have to say that, like, our suspicion when we watch an episode like that and, and those of us who like watch too much TV is that like, okay, they really need to sell us on this 
this relationship is going to need to feel earned. It, we're going to need to believe Tom Hiddleston when he's crying alone back at the TVA that yeah. his heart is broken. And so they need to take the time in a six-episode season, even in a six-episode season, to give us that episode where it's the two of them together. What do you think of it, like, in light of the finale? And, you know, do you think it was the most successful version of what they needed that to be? I think it was because I think you're right. Like, the, the rela- if the relationship doesn't matter, then none of this matters. Then it's just people running around and timey-wimey. And it's still fun because it's got Hiddleston and the great production design and everything Kate Aaron was doing. But it's it's empty calories. And right. I, so I think they really needed to do that. And I remember when those complaints were, were happening that time. The one thing people said was, like, maybe in, like, uh, you know, definitely in a Lost-length season, but even in a 13- or 10-episode kind of season that, you know, is mostly done, they would have been cooler with it. But in only six episodes of story, they were a little troubled that an entire episode was devoted to this, and they were worried that everything else would feel rushed. And I think part of that was also we didn't know if there was going to be a second season. I think definitely some things did feel rushed in these last couple of episodes, especially the the TVA material. I really have sort of little sense of what went on when Mobius and B-15 got back there, when they mm-hmm. got to see Ravona as, was she a school teacher or was she the principal? I couldn't quite make out, like, the the signage there. This is my favorite thing about talking to you in the morning, Alan Seppenwell, is you'll, like, ask me, like, really detailed questions about an episode that, like, only you want to, want to, like, study the very corners. That's why you're so good at what you do. And I'm like, oh, I didn't, it wouldn't have occurred to me to look at that. I assumed she was, I was saying teacher before, but now that I think about our office and the fact she has a diploma on the wall, I probably get administrator principles. I'm like, yes. Okay. So, so principal Renslayer or whatever her her name was back then. (laughs) Yeah. There's all these bits of business that don't really go anywhere and you can kind of fill in the blanks yourself. And to a degree, I would rather see what we saw than see that. But there was definitely some, like, you know, spit and wire holding things together here because they had spent so much time on Loki and Sylvie earlier. But again, I think they spent the time on the stuff that mattered, and we're going to get another season of it. And so we'll, we'll get to see some of these things pay off later. So I'm I'm good with it. And that is, like, episode three was one of my favorites, except for all the others that have come after it. It's been a really <laughs> good run. Where do you put this with the other... Um... You know, Disney Plus shows. There's, I mean, you know, like this finale dropped at midnight on the on Emmy announcement Tuesday when uh, Disney Plus and Marvel cleaned up with a mountain of Emmy nominations for WandaVision and, you know, a few for Falcon and Winter Soldier. Um, Don Cheadle, baby. Yeah. (laughs) Don Cheadle and not Carl Lumley, uh, a a terrible crime. Not they're not in the same category. I'm just saying. I, I, you know, I would love to throw an Emmy at Carl Lumley for what he did in Falcon and Winter Soldier. Um, but, uh, like, what what do you think about the state of Disney plus Marvel TV right now? I think this is this is easily my favorite of them. Um, it's not perfect, but I liked it overall more, and I definitely thought it was the best ending of the three. Wanda, I really enjoyed, but I think parts of the sitcom stuff worked much better for me than other parts. And I don't know that, like, there were necessarily, like, a six episodes in that. Um, and part of that is, I, I believe, as you've reported, the way they edited it, because originally it might have just been six episodes of the show total. Um, so, but I, but overall, that that was really good. It just sort of faltered at the end. Falcon was mostly a mess, and Falcon is also, maybe coincidentally, maybe not, the one that feels closest to what they already do in the movies. And these other mm-hmm. two feel very weird and very different, um, and very much like television, which, you know, as someone who covers TV and cares passionately about it, 
I enjoy. So I don't know, like, I don't know, like, where they were with Hawkeye or She-Hulk or any of the other stuff while these things were airing and being received. But I would like to think at least for future projects beyond those, Kevin Feige and everybody else are looking and seeing, no, the audience wanted this and not that. And that, like, hopefully the MCU in the future on Disney Plus sort of keeps moving in this direction. This sort of, like, feels like television is kind of weird and wonderful. I mean, like, Kang showing up and, uh, you know, Jonathan Major showing up and doing his thing felt like some of the, like, more fun, weird parts of WandaVision. Do you know what I mean? Like, just, I mean, all of Loki feels kind of gonzo, of course. But, like, um, <laughs> I, just th- I just think that that performance, you know, you put that performance next to what, like, Catherine Hahn is doing and you've got Yahtzee, right? Like, that's just, that's just like, really fun stuff. <laughs> Uh, for me, like I, I still think I put WandaVision give it a slight edge over Loki. Um, I really loved that up until the finale, but I, I far prefer the Loki finale to the WandaVision finale. I think it's the most successful yes. finale they've done. So the idea that maybe they overhauled it during the pandemic, I'm just impressed by that. Something I, I wanted. This is something that you know, as you know, I do a Lost podcast. This is something we talk about a lot on Lost. The the Lost accusation that they got all the time was like, oh, they were just making it up as they go along. And I'm like, yeah, that's called writing. Like, I don't know what to tell you. But like, something that Vince Gilligan and his writers would always say on uh, Breaking Bad is that at the end of a season, they would like to sort of write themselves into an impossible corner and yeah. sort of be like, how does how's old Walt going to get out of this one sort of thing and set, yes. you know, and not know how they were going to do it. And so they yep. are, they're making it up as they go along. And I like, ever since I heard him talk about that, I'm just sort of like, I, I think that accusation is, is bullshit to say like, oh, no, they're just making it up as they go along. I'm like, e- 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 the only time that that's a legitimate complaint is if they do a bad job of writing yes. themselves out of the corner that they've gotten themselves. And, and, and the, the counter argument that I will always make is how I met your mother because that is like the classic example of a show <laughs> that planned things out right. way in advance and then yeah. refused to like modify that plan as the show evolved beyond it uh and resulting in like one of the worst finales ever made um and it's it's and it's a finale that basically is only liked by people who had stopped watching the show years earlier and came back for it's like oh yeah that makes sense so I like plans are great. Like David Simon, when he plans out the wire, that obviously works very well. You know, Babylon five has a lot of ardent fans, but I think for the most part, TVs are like evolving organisms and you can't, you can do a little planning, but you can't plot out everything. You've got to be flexible. You've got to see what your actors are giving you, what your directors are doing, just sort of where the story is going and then evolve from there. And yes, if you're as talented as Vince Gilligan, you can put a machine gun in the trunk of Walt's car with no clue whatsoever who, who he's <laughs> using it on or why and like beat your head against the desk until you figure it out. Um, but <laughs> yeah, yeah but definitely the fact that they can do that. And that's one of the most beloved shows of all time. I think it's makes make stuff up. It's part of the writing idea. Right. And so then when, when I hear like, oh, we we majorly overhauled some scripts in the pandemic. I'm like, good. <laughs> I mean, great. I mean, that's that's another thing that baffled me about this whole pandemic pause, uh, a very genteel way to describe it. But like, if folks weren't working and reworking their TVs, TV shows and film, like, what were you doing? Like, you had all this gimme time to like work on this. Um, maybe I'm misunderstanding something and, and that's a completely privileged uh, way to think about it. But like, if it were me, I would be refining and refining and refining with that time. Yeah. Um, as a comic book nerd as you are. Yes. Um, 
I want to ask you like what you like what you understand about Kang and how much you feel like this episode did a good job of promising who Kang might be in this universe. Okay, well one of the reasons I was asking about what we're calling him is because he, you know, he they do not use the name Kang in Correct. the episode, even in the credits, Jonathan Majors right. is listed as he who remains, which is what Miss Minutes calls him. Correct. Ah. Uh, in the comic books, this character, whose real name, I believe, is Nathaniel Richards, mm-hmm. is a descendant of Reed Richards' father, who was himself like a time traveler or inventor or something. He he builds a time machine, travels back to ancient Egypt, becomes a pharaoh calling himself Ramatut, then travels through time again, runs into Doctor Doom, who might also be his ancestor, or maybe not, because comic book you know lore keeps changing all the time, decides he's now going to be a conqueror named Kang. And he doesn't, re- he only uses the time travel at that point just to sort of like gather a man and materiel. And he then invades like time periods that are otherwise unguarded, takes them over, and chills for a little bit until he wants to conquer something else. Then at a certain point, he evolves into Immortus, who has a really cool beard and a very big wizard hat and is trying <laughs> to sort of um, like keep control of the time stream itself. So he's really like Mr. Time Travel. The other two Kangs are only about, like, ruling where they are right now or, or getting into fights and winning these fights. Immortus, like, plays with time, snips alternate realities, works with the timekeepers. So he keeps evolving. There's also the Scarlet Centurion and a couple of other identities that I, I'm perhaps missing at this point. And the, the reason I bring this up is because I feel like the way that the Jonathan Majors character we are watching in this episode is describing his history and the wars he's had with all of these variants is, I think he's maybe all of those. Like, I think... Now all the different Kangs are in play, and we're probably not going to see him as a pharaoh, although having Jonathan Majors playing him instead of a white guy definitely makes that more palatable. But I think, like, yeah, yeah, I think we're definitely, like, the idea that there's all these different alternate Kangs in the same way that we got a glimpse of so many alternate Lokis over the course of this season. Like, I would like to think that if Majors is available for all of these things, the character he plays in Quantumania is going to be very different from the character he plays right. in Loki season two right. and very different from the character he plays in any other appearances they pay him to make over the next few years in the MCU. I mean, yeah, I like, I am, I'm, I'm excited for us all to like hear from majors and like what his thought process is behind everything. But like, you have to think that that was maybe a, a massive commitment. If they're asking, Hey, do you want to come and sort of, just be in everything playing different versions of a character. Um, I think that'd be really fun. It's, it's different from Thanos. And that was a big question of like, how do you follow Thanos? Right. It's so, it's so massive, uh, you know, both literally and just sort of like as he loomed over the MCU. And so I think this idea of like the many Kangs or, you know, whatever you want to call him, Immortus or Nathaniel or, or whatever he who remains, um, played by one actor. I think that's a really exciting prospect. And, and even in this episode, like every line reading could be from a different performance. Like Ugh. just the way, and again, this is no business working. This should be so self-indulgent and weird and annoying. And yet he pulls it off and makes it like he sells the idea that this guy has been alive forever and has encountered so many different uh, variations of himself that he kind of has like by osmosis become all of them. And therefore, like you, even in a conversation with just this one guy, you're getting a half a dozen of them. Exactly, exactly right. Um, and then like, how how does um, like overall, 
as a comic book guy, like, how has this show done feeding, you know, because the thing about Waldron is he's brought on for head writer of this, is he's not really a comic book guy. He's a Rick and Morty guy. He's a wrestling guy. He's not really a comic book guy. Whereas, like, some some creatives that you have working at, at Marvel Studios are comic book people, like a James Gunn or something like that. Yes. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's better to have someone who's, like, sort of writing from outside the club uh, about what's going on in the club. And so, like, how do you think Waldron and, and his staff, we should say, did, uh, you know, with this assignment, with this Loki, um, like, how how much does it feel like a true comic book show? How much does it feel like something else entirely? To me, it felt, and again, I'm coming at this from like someone who immediately recognizes Throg bouncing around in the jar and, and all of those <laughs> right. little Easter eggs. So, yeah. although weirdly, I had never encountered the Thanos copter before last week, and I'm so sad for myself that this was my first encounter with it. Um, because <laughs> but I now you have many more. Had. <laughs> but but you, you, the joy is waiting for you in the future, Alan. Yes, <laughs> so this is true. Future copter joy you can have. So I will say, from my perspective as a super nerd who's, like, very first uh, comic book ever was the Avengers fighting the Absorbing Man in, like, the late 1970s, like, this satisfied me. This felt true to Loki, to the world, to the TVA, to sort of all these different concepts they incorporated, including Kang or whatever we're referring to him this minute. Uh, That was all good. What I wondered about and what I think actually worked because he was an outsider, even if there were other people working with him who were not, Mm-hmm. was I think it works for people who don't know this stuff. I was talking to my friend Brian, uh, Brian Grubb, earlier, and he doesn't know any of the comic book stuff and is not really super into the MCU to begin with. And he had just watched the Loki finale, and I said, like, could you understand it? Did you enjoy it? He said, well, I couldn't really follow all of the Kang stuff, but I liked it. And yeah. I think, like, if if they're achieving that, then it's working. You know what I mean? I completely agree. Like, and that's the whole thing about this Kang introduction. I was so, I had so much trepidation because, like, all signs were pointing to Kang. And I was like, no way it's Kang. They're not going to do that to the poor newbies. They're not going to drop a Kang out of nowhere on them yeah. in the finale. It's not going to work. You can't do that. That's such bad storytelling. And yet and it then, worked. And then it worked. <laughs> <laughs> we witnessed a miracle today, Alan Zeppelin. I guess, oh I guess this, the secret is, you know, if you hire Jonathan Majors for all these impossible parts, you know, you can do it. You, you can make it work. Think of all the things. Like, what if he had been the mother? Then everything would have been fine on How I Met Your Mother. You know what I mean? Oh, well, uh, well yeah. I don't think they would have ever killed off the mother. <laughs> if it had been Jonathan Majors. No, keep him. Um Ugh. Like what else, like like what else are you are, well, like okay let me let me ask you a forward looking question what are you exciting about that's coming in in the MCU Well I'm really excited to see Hawkeye just because the the Matt Fraction run yeah. on the on those two characters is one of my favorite comic books in a very long time and Same. if they're if they're using that as the template which they seem to be that should be exciting and Jeremy Renner is a guy who I've always sort of found better uh, when he's allowed to be funny in a way that, that this storyline and this milieu should let him be. Like, Haley Steinfeld's really good casting, so I'm looking forward to that. I love She-Hulk. I love She-Hulk, like, in the courtroom in the Dan Slott comic that they seem to be, you know, referring to as the influence for that. So th- that's exciting, too, and Maslani, you know, can do anything. Like, she could have played Kang, and that would have been good as well. But so the <laughs> definitely, like... the. One of the things they're doing right now that that I'm impressed by is they're not necessarily just bringing in big stars. Mm-hmm. And obviously, Owen Wilson is is a big star, uh, but a lot of the other people are a bit less known than that. 
in this phase that are coming in, but they're really versatile. They can sort of sell ridiculous things. I mean, look at all the stuff that Jonathan Majors had to do on Lovecraft Country to, to make feel real on a show that was all over the map in terms of tone and genre and everything else. You know, and look at all the things Maslani had to do on Orphan Black. So I like, I like that they're bringing in these kinds of people and giving them big, meaty roles and not just saying, we're the MCU, let's get the most famous people we possibly can at this point. Because we've just, lost RDJ, yeah. we've lost Chris Evans, you know, right. we're losing other people. Well, and, and like, uh, the, the ethos of the beginning of Marvel Studios, right, is like, RDJ was sort of, you know, down on his luck when they cast him as Tony Stark. Um they made Chris Evans. They made Chris Hemsworth, yes. right? Like this, that was sort of where they started. And so like, we're seeing this already with like Black Widow, not that Florence Pugh wasn't known. She was Oscar nominated, but like they're putting Florence Pugh and, and with brilliant casting and a brilliant performance into a place where she can vault into a sort of Chris Evans level, um, but if she wants to from here, do you know? Yeah, I mean, she like, are, she already feels by the end of that movie like I really like ScarJo. She was very rarely given enough to do in these movies, but she uh, Florence Pugh already feels like if they just slot her in yeah. to the things that Natasha did, she can already fit seamlessly into that, and hopefully, she gets more to do ultimately. Right, and so then when you put in a Jonathan Majors, like I'm not I'm not worried about oh what are they going to do after Thanos. Oh, they're going to do Kang, and it's going to be amazing. That's what they're going to do. <laughs> it's so funny that you brought up Tatiana Maslany and Orphan Black, because I just realized, essentially, they're hiring Jonathan Majors to do Orphan Black, yes. <laughs> if they're asking him to do all these variants. That's wild. It's going to be really well, fun. So I remember years ago, when I was doing a junket for Star Trek Nemesis, of all things, and I'm wow. yeah, <laughs> the only time I had ever interviewed Sir Patrick Stewart, and we're, we're talking, and I asked specifically like about the fact that, that he and Ian McKellen are, like, both involved in multiple, you know, sci-fi slash fantasy franchises. Mm -hmm. And what is it, like, that, that, why are they in such high demand for those? And And he said, like, basically it's because they're classically trained, and therefore they're able to sort of take these crazy things and give some level of believability to them, even as, like, the warp drive is going and the dragons are flying and the Balrog is smashing through and everything else that's happening. And, like, Maslany or Major may not necessarily be known for, like, Shakespeare, but they do have that same kind of skill of, like, I'm going to take this ridiculous thing and I'm going to make th- this guy seem like a person, even though his personality changes every five seconds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. I love that. What about the What If series that's coming out, this animated? Um, I know that it's a comic book premise, but, like, now that we've seen the end of Loki, do you feel like what if is just going to be uh, like an actual instead of just sort of a flight of fancy, is it going to be an actual representation of what a, a multiverse gone mad looks like? It, it certainly could be that. And I'm excited. Like, I really want to see the, the Captain Carter episode, among others. I really want to hear you know Chadwick Boseman play T'Challa one more time. Yeah. Um, that, that trailer looked great to me. Uh, I'm fine if it is just an anthology show like the comic book originally was, but there were certain points in which What If was used to fuel other things. I'm pretty sure that Spider-Girl, the Peter Parker's daughter from an alternate timeline, first appeared in a What If, and people loved her so much that they just turned that into an ongoing series. They did a few other storylines where What If characters or concepts burst out into the main MCU. So if they want to do that, they can. And if they just want to use it to illustrate the multiverse, like you said, they can do that, too. Um, 
But I also think that there is nothing wrong, uh, especially in this day and age, with just having a really well-made anthology show where each, like, you watch any particular episode and you get something really satisfying there. Yeah. I mean, I think the the two highlights you mentioned are the, are the highlights for me, but, like, I think it's interesting that What If has existed in the, in the comics as a proving ground for a concept, because, I mean, if they wanted to give me a Captain Britain, Haley Atwell show, <laughs> I would yeah. watch it so quickly. I mean, I know people didn't, enough, not enough people watch Peggy Carter, so maybe Marvel doesn't believe me when I say that, but you gotta believe me. I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to think, like, so they're going to have to CGI, like, these huge physiques onto both Maslany and Atwell. Uh, (laughs) Well, I guess if they can make She-Hulk work, they can definitely make a live-action Captain Carter show work. I mean, listen, like, uh, you know, they've got the mocap down for Mark Ruffalo, where you're getting smart Hulk Ruffalo face with the Hulk (laughs) body, so, you know. Yes, all right, I'm I'm there. I'm down with it. (laughs) What about, have you, have you spent time, any time thinking about, like, how this could feed into the Doctor Strange film that's coming up? Well, it's just, uh, there's there's times in which I wish I didn't know as much as I did. Because, like, mm. then, like, I didn't know that it was called Doctor Strange of the Multiverse of Madness and Wanda's going to be in it. And that after that, you're going to get a Spider-Man movie featuring, like, all of these characters from the Sam Raimi and Mark Webb films. Like, I mean, I, I do kind of, in a way, miss the days when we could be surprised, surprised by that stuff. Uh, but at the same time, like, the fact that they're now opening up the multiverse and bringing in lots of alternate things feels to me like there are so many possibilities, and it could be a situation where what we think we know is only a fraction of what's going to be there. Um, and I'm definitely glad to see Raimi, like, doing a superhero movie again with, with Doctor Strange, and it's weird to have him then setting up a Spider-Man movie that he's not making, but I'm I'm looking forward to both of those, too. I want to ask you about a bigger picture TV question, which is um, obviously this is like a new era of Marvel, not just because of the platform Disney Plus, but because like Feige et al. at, at Marvel Studios are, are masterminding this versus the Jeff Loeb era of of the shows at Netflix, which were hit and miss. You know, like I'm a big Daredevil season one fan, um, but, you know, some of those seasons not so great. A lot of them suffering from that, like middle section Netflix flab and like all of her stuff like that. Right. But like, um, you know, what do you see Feige at all doing better? Not just because they have the ability to weave it into their movie franchise. What are they doing better that these other shows may, maybe agents of field, maybe Netflix, if you feel that way, weren't doing. I mean, I think, I think that being able to weave is kind of a double edged sword, honestly, because I think I think some of the things that went awry with both the WandaVision finale and the Falcon and the Winter Soldier finale came directly out of the fact that the like they are, these stuff is tied to the movies. They now need to send Wanda off to interact with Stephen Strange in another movie. They need U.S. Agent to be part of something, whether it's Secret Invasion or, or an upcoming movie. They they kind of need to set up this stuff, and because of that, they the the stories couldn't necessarily go where the previous episodes of those seasons seem to be taking those characters. So I think that there's a degree to which, like, the shows still feel kind of subservient to the movies in the way that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was at the beginning. The difference is now, like, they're allowed to feature bigger and more prominent characters, whereas, like, the best Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. could get was, like, Lady Sif. Um, right. And I like Lady Sif, don't get me wrong, I'm just saying, like, it, N- was, not, it was very much a one-way street, <laughs> uh, the communication. Yeah. Between that show and the films, so I think that's yeah. better. Um, and, and I 
and I think, but I think what makes these shows better is really not the fact that they have access to these characters. All these are great characters, and they're played by great actors, and in many cases, better actors than some of the people who were cast in the Netflix shows. Uh, but I think it's more just like they're better told. I think they're hiring better creatives. I think they have a better sense of like what a TV show is and and how it's supposed to work. The fact that they're that Disney Plus wants to do weekly releases. I think is certainly helping fuel that. I think if Netflix was doing weekly, maybe Jessica Jones and Daredevil, um, you know, would have been making different choices than they did. We'll never know. Um, But I saw somebody associated with one of those shows, ironically Mm -hmm. saying that, that they felt that Loki and the Disney plus shows felt like movies broken into bits. When to me, it's the exact opposite of that. Like these feel for the most part, other than Falcon, like a television show, and it's been, for the most part, much better as a result, because there's just things that work on television that don't work in movies and vice versa, and you need people who can understand the difference, and you need, like, them to be creative on top of that. I'm trying to think, so, like, when I talked to Waldron before the season started, he was saying that he really did want to make those episodes feel like, those six episodes feel like distinct episodes. Uh, So I'm going to do a a thought experiment right now and see if I can do the one where all those episodes, right? So the first one is like the one where Loki goes to the TVA, right? Yes. That's the first. Okay. It's the premiere. Well, Prem- premieres are often like not distinctive other than here's the premise of this season. Yes. Right. What would you do for episode two? Episode two is the one where they're buddy cops. Although even that's only like half the episode. So I feel, the one where they go to Rock's cart. I mean, I, I think I feel like I keep coming up with locations. That's kind of cheating. But yeah, the, yeah. the buddy cop one, the, 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 the one with Pompeii. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, episode three. The the Sylvie episode, the one yeah, with Sylvie, the, right? Yes, exactly. The 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 one where they're on a, on a moon that's about to blow up. <laughs> the the Doctor Who episode, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah, the Doctor Who episode is a good, or the Before Sunrise episode, right? Yes, um, all of these things work. That is definitely easily the most standalone of all of them, even though it feeds into stuff that happened before and after. I agree, and then I think one of the toughest one is episode four, because um, <laughs> that's the one where. Sylvie and Loki temporarily go back to the TVA, but I don't like. I I was looking up the premise of that episode, the synopsis of that episode, and I was sort of like, "Huh." I mean, I liked that episode fine, but not a ton happened, right? Um, it's sort of well. A lot I mean, of back they, they do the they one- do like cut off the heads of of the timekeepers. Oh, but- you're right. Okay, sure. The one where they cut off the heads gun. The one where B15 wakes up. The one. But I where- think it's I think it's sort of like the premiere in the the fact that even like as long as your show is semi serialized. There are going to be some episodes that are completely distinctive, and there are going to be some episodes that are just, we got to move the plot along. And you know this even better than I do, revisiting Lost for the Storm, which is, like, there are a lot of really distinct Lost episodes, but some of them are just, we got to move the chess pieces around, and we'll sort of try to use a flashback to make it seem distinctive, but it's really just an excuse to, we got to get this guy here, we got to get this guy here. And, and that's okay, and as long as you don't do too many of them. The problem is a lot of modern streaming shows, especially, that's all they do. Mm. The one with all the Lokis. Yes. Love it. Love it. Love it. with all the Lokis. And then the one with Kang. It's so funny, by the way, like, everyone was convinced that Richard E. Grant was going to be in three episodes of the show. And I don't know if it was just because that's what IMDb listed or if it was reported elsewhere. But he's in one episode plus five seconds of another one. I mean, I definitely thought he was, like, the big bad behind everything. But that's yeah. just because I wanted to see Richard E. Grant. I mean, like, 
Jonathan Major is incredible, but I also think Richard E. Grant could probably captivate me monologuing for an episode too. So, you know, it's, um, yeah. he's, he's just that kind of guy. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think the show pretty much passes that the one where test pretty much. Yes. Um, I could not ever even dream of doing it with Falcon and Winter Soldier. Not for a second. Uh, and yeah, then it's easy to do with yeah. Wanda because of the, t- yes. you know, the, the TV. Yes. Era is, Even the so. episodes that are not TV shows are very distinctive here. Yeah. Here's the one about Jimmy and Darcy. Here's the yeah. one where we find out what happened to Wanda in between the movies. You know, yeah. here's the finale. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So good job, uh, Michael Waldron. You made some television. Um, right, so I, I, got, I got two <laughs> questions for you. Yeah. If yeah. you don't mind me hijacking your own podcast. Jeremy. Please, please hit me. Yeah. Okay. The first one is what was Sylvie's original plan? What was she trying to do? Um, bring, I mean, bring, kill, kill the people responsible for causing her pain. Okay. And, and so the, the various time bombs that she's been stealing. Oh, I mean, that I hate because they bomb the time. I mean, I, I like the show a lot, but they bomb the time. She bombs the timeline as a distraction, right? And I get that, yes. that that's her plan. She's going to distract everyone. She's going to go up the elevator. She's going to lop off the heads of the timekeepers as revenge for what they did to her um but then th- it's an emergency at the end of one episode and then it's never mentioned again yes and like, that I, drove I, me I saw, insane i saw a lot of coverage convinced that that was in fact the birth of the multiverse because again we know what the next few movies are about and so we assume it's coming and i guess not she just you know, set off some fireworks i don't it's confusing yeah it just feels like a distraction but i just really didn't like that it was a big emergency that ended one episode and then was never mentioned again. I needed someone yes. to be like, well, glad we resolved that pretty quickly by bloop, blooping the blorp. You know what I mean? Like something. <laughs> but they didn't even bloop the blorp. So I don't know. Felt, yes. felt messy. All right. Okay. What else? What's your second, second question? Yeah. Did you need to see a jet ski by the end of this season? I mean, once again, I feel like this is part of what was pruned out to make room for all the Kang is my suspicion. Um, did I need to see a jet ski? No. What I was hoping to do was to find out Mobius's backstory, you know, yeah. and that has just been completely shunted to season two. We don't know anything. You know, we know B-15 or at least B-15 knows her backstory, but Mobius hasn't even been like to use uh, to use some losty parlance. Like he hasn't even been woken up yet. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so what's uh, what's going on? Uh, so that, that felt a little frustrating. Also, like, talking to the lovely Kate Heron, who I think did a phenomenal job directing these episodes, but she was, you know, one of the things she was asking is, like, you want to know why why Sylvie's hair is blonde and why she goes by Sylvie? And I'm like, yeah, I don't think I got answers to any of that. Like, why why did she dye her hair blonde? Why Why does she abhor the name Loki? Is it because it's associated with the persecution? Is because she had to hide her identity to hide from the TVA this whole time. Um, I can extrapolate that, but no one's ever said that, you know. So. I'm trying to remember, is she blonde in the flashback when she's a little kid? No, no. She's got okay. brown hair. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, yeah. So no, those, are, those are highlights. And those are professional. That's, that's no Black Widow in her bathroom bleach. That's Those are some professional highlights that she got done. So Well, I mean, uh, there, yeah. there's got to be some apocalypse she hid out in where there was a salon. <laughs> I so. Guess so. I suppose so. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do. I do think that there are questions that were planted that maybe they planned to answer, and then got they Marvel liked the show so much they decided to do a second season. So they're like, well, we'll uh, you know, Apple S Control Save that and uh, explore it in season two. I suppose. 
You know, I just like that they're at least allowing the possibility of these shows to continue because WandaVision's not going to. Sam is going to be in a Captain America movie before there's even the possibility of them doing another yeah. season of that show, mm-hmm. um, assuming they ever do. So I like I don't want them all to just be miniseries. That's the great thing about comics and these characters is you can tell so many stories with them, and in especially for some of these more minor characters at a length that there's just not room to do anything with them in the movies. Well, I think what's interesting about Marvel Studios is despite the fact um, and this is something that folks who work there have said to me, and I don't think they're just blowing smoke, but like, despite the fact that they have so many plates spinning right now, way more than they used to when they were just making a couple movies a year. And even a couple of movies a year felt like a pretty steady clop, but like right now they've got so many balls up in the air, but they're still a very pliable, they're very pliable storytellers. And so I feel like when they, you know, when they have to juggle shows and WandaVision has to come out before Falcon and the Winter Soldier because it's done first. Like, that's fine. Or when, you know, Julie Louis-Dreyfus has to show up in Falcon and the Winter Soldier before she premieres elsewhere if people haven't watched the latest things and I'm not going to say, like, you know... Uh, Whatever could you be referring yeah, to, Yeah, yeah was, that was really slick. Um, You know, like, it doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't matter. Yes. And, and you know, if, they, if they're if they watching a Loki show, they're watching the dailies or whatever, and Kevin Feige or whoever at Marvel Studios is like, we should definitely do more of this, you know? Then they rewrite their finale, bring in Jonathan Majors, and set up a season two. You know what I mean? So I think, I think like comics, yeah. um, you know, they're going to green light these mini runs, and then, like, if it's a popular storyline, like Fractions Hawkeye, it's just going to keep going. Until Fraction doesn't want to write it anymore. Um, so, you know, it's going to be audience dependent. It's going to be whether they like it dependent. So, uh, but I like I like that it's pliable like that. I like that Falcon the Winter Soldier can launch to a movie and, and WandaVision can launch to a movie, but Loki can just launch to itself in season two. Like, yes. That's interesting. So. Yes. All right. Anything else you want to say about, about this episode? Well, um, I mean, I have a lot of things to say, Joanna, but I just want to let you get some rest. I, you know... <laughs> You, you and Anthony are so concerned for me. I so appreciate you. I've been I've been trying to keep my energy high, just so like you don't <laughs> nod off in the middle of it because I'm a, I'm a loud and voluble person by nature. But <laughs> well, know. yeah, we'll we'll have another. We're doing a wrap up episode, so folks, uh, you know, if there are things that we didn't cover that you're irate that that we didn't talk about, you can always email me stillwatchingpod at gmail dot com, and Bresnikin and I will cover it in our in our final wrap up episode. Um. Alan, I, of course, hope that I get to have you on this and many podcasts again in the future. But um, until then, where can where can folks find you and your work? All right. So I'm on most social media at Seppenwall, except Facebook. I'm at Alan Seppenwall and um, I'm at Rolling Stone. I appear regularly. My Loki recap did, in fact, go up while we were recording this. <laughs> if you want to go read it, it's at RollingStone.com now. Uh, I've got the podcast, which you mentioned earlier, Too Long Didn't Watch, the premise of which is in every episode, a celebrity guest, I sit down with them, we pick a show they've never seen before, and we watch only the first episode and the last episode, and nothing in between, and they have to try to make sense of what happened while they weren't watching. And there's ten episodes available now, and then a second season is coming, hopefully sometime in the next month or two, and we're going to announce that shortly. But in the meantime, the, it's really a lot of fun, and you can hear Allison Bree have to sit through the Game of Thrones finale, which Joanna is... Not really a good episode of TV. I think you would agree with that. I'm on board with you and Alison Brie as, as not thinking that's a good episode of television. I always pretend that Thrones ended with Night of the Seven Kingdoms. 
That's where I left <laughs> my favorite characters, sitting by the fire. Um, oh, I love that one. <laughs> well, thank you, Alan. And folks, stay tuned because up next is the illustrious, the incredible Richard E. Grant. So uh, tough act to follow, Alan Seppenwall, but Richard E. Grant will do his best. I want to talk with Richard E. Grant. Man, <laughs> you get all the fun stuff, Joanna. Next time. Next time, Alan. All right. Bye. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> <Right> nice. <up. laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great Chill being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I want to start by asking you, I actually want to start at the end and ask you about this, this last scene for your character in this episode. Um, and uh, I was reading from one of the, the show's writer that it was just you with like a fan on your face, acting at blue curtains, take after take. And I was just wondering what it was like for you to sort of dig in in a, in a VFX uh, intense moment like that and deliver what you delivered? Well, it's, that's very generous of him to have said that, but it is, I mean, there were industrial sized, there were like air, you know, airplane wind turbines blowing at you. And then instructions coming through an earpiece of saying, you know, follow this. And uh, this is where, this is where Asgard is now moving. So you, you have an, um, an eye line to follow. Um, and basically scream your lungs out, you know, uh, <laughs> glorious purpose, and laughing in the face of your own death. So all of that was, you know, it was my last day on it. And so you 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 go for it. It's it's you're in a situation where it's everything that you're hired or trained to do as an actor of trying to imagine something and then react to it. Uh, except in this case. Uh, you have the advantage of actual wind coming at you, uh, you know, just having to scream at the top of your lungs. So I hugely enjoyed it. I pretended that I had muscles in order to fight Asgard because the costume designer resolutely refused to give me a muscle suit, which I had hoped I would have, as in the Jack Kirby drawing. Sure, you were lobbying for muscles and you got baggy tights instead. Isn't that no. always the way? Isn't that always the way? <laughs> well, I, well, I want to ask you about that costume. Did you have a, a favorite part of the costume and a least favorite part of the costume? Uh, all of it was my least favorite part because I didn't have muscles. Because in the costume design drawing, I had muscles. <laughs> so I thought, right, I'm flying to Atlanta. I'm just going to have to step into a muscle suit. I don't care how hot it is because I was born without any. I would finally look like sort of Schwarzenegger in a cape. I didn't mind the horns or the, you know, how tight the head thing fitted. I didn't mind any of that. But when I said, I said, how can I possibly fight Asgard if I haven't got the full Stallones on me? And they said, no, no, don't worry about that. So I had to sort of 
reconcile in my head that it was withered Loki taking on the universe. <laughs> I want to ask you about that cape because you do tremendous, uh, tremendous work with the cape. There's some flourishes. There's some sort of comedic uh, cape tossing. Um, do you wish more of your costumes had capes attached to them? I had a cape in Star Wars, but that scene with the cape got cut. Oh, and, no. uh, I'm currently just finishing up on a Netflix version of Jane Austen's Persuasion with Dakota Fanning and Cosmo Jarvis, and I do have a cape in that. So I think that it is, it's certainly part and parcel of an English actor's life that you get to do some cape work as the decades go by, because anybody who's in period costume at all, you, you get to wear a cape. So I was well prepared from having played Scarlet Pippinel on TV 22 years ago. So when I was given the cape in, uh, in Loki, in Loki land, um, I I had had an experience of some fabric swishing before, put it like that. Who are you playing in, in Persuasion? Are you playing Mr. Elliot? Who are you playing? Lord Elliot, who is described as the vainest man in literature. Yeah, excellent. himself all over the walls. Um, so that is Sir Walter Elliot. That's, that's who I'm playing. Sir Walter Elliot, the old oh, guy. Perfect. That's going to be so fun. Um, you know, because you, you are so willing to commit to capes, to whatever it takes, did you have any hesitation at all in taking this part when they offered it to you or you immediately all in, yes, I want to do this? All in, yes, because, yeah. you know, it's something that I'd never been asked to do before. And I had, I had long talked on and off socially with uh, Tom Hiddleston about working together because we don't have a dissimilar um, body silhouette, um, except he has muscles, of course. <laughs> and we have this V-shaped hairline, but of course you don't see our hairlines at all once I've got that, um, the horns headpiece on. But uh, so when I was offered this, I thought, oh, I've been cast because to be an older version of Tom. So that didn't, that didn't surprise me from that, from that point of view, but um, I had no idea that I would be, I would land in Loki land. <laughs> that was a real bonus. Did you make up a, um, did you make up a story for yourself about how long your character had been there or were you given that backstory? I was, it's, it's very simple in that the, that when he describes when old Loki describes how how his life has been he says you know I'm the god of the outcasts and I've been living in isolation for all this time and that it was his longing to see his brother that brought him out of isolation and uh, therefore then got arrested by the TVA so that to me summed up I thought was well, somebody who who lives eternally and in isolation like that, his baseline of his, his life is, is loneliness. And that was the key into me for what I thought the, I had to try and bring to that episode. That's his vulnerability. Yeah. It's interesting though. Like I would, I would think someone who had been that lonely um, and, and especially a Loki who had been that lonely for so long might be more, bitter but you're not playing him as embittered was there ever an instinct to play in that way no because i think that's the certainly my experience of loneliness and the people that i know that are profoundly lonely um is that they have great vulnerability and that ameliorates any bitterness that they might have i mean it's certainly 
a flavour in there, but it's not something that I think if he was just bitter lemon in and out, he wouldn't bother to come back um, from isolation. He'd just stay, stay being an old sort of grouch. Uh, you mentioned sort of uh, reckoning that they wanted you to play a version of Tom. Uh, yeah. Something that we've heard a lot from folks who worked on the projects of these things that Tom gave called uh, Loki lectures, right? Yeah. Which where when he sort of broke down what it meant for him to play Loki, did you yeah. attend these Loki lectures? What, what can you tell us about them? No, but I'd heard that they had had them. And um, uh, Owen Wilson told me, he said, if you don't know already, Tom can, you know, chapter and verse, he can give you every single thing, the lowdown on, on Loki. And indeed, when I started working, before we, you know, the first day of rehearsals, um, Tom came and saw me and, and he said, he is essentially self, self-confessed Lokipedia, walking Wikipedia or <laughs> Lokia Norse. And so he gave me an outline of everything and then said, you know, just fire away and ask any questions. So it was very reassuring from my point of view, because if you were parachuted into a series that has been, already established they've, they've shot four episodes prior to you know my arrival um tom had been playing the part for over a decade so it meant that rather than having thinking oh god you know, how the hell do i fit in here when in doubt ask tom and he always had the answer and he was so articulate and entertaining and impassioned about it um i mean what's so extraordinary is that he seems as gung-ho about playing this part now um, as I imagine he must have been on the first day that he ever did it all that all those years ago. So right. he is completely invested in it 2000%. Did you do you remember if you had any specific questions for him uh, about any need to consult the Lokipedia? Yeah, because it's you know, at what level to pitch it. And he said to me, when I said, you're in modern dress, and I am now appearing in the classic Loki from the from the you know, 96 Jack Kirby illustrations in the 60s comics, um, minus the muscles. <laughs> you know, how, is, how will that sit with what you're doing? And he said, don't worry about that. Um, he said, what you will bring to it and you know, what the script gives you is, is the guide for that. So, and that proved to be true. Something that one of these series writers, Eric Martin, uh, said on Twitter was that you would just hang around the set between your scenes and just yeah. hang out, be ready, maybe take a nap on the ground if you wanted to, no muss, no fuss. Yeah. Uh, is this your normal approach to filming? Or uh, yeah. I, don't ever, I don't ever leave. Um, I'm not a method actor, but I, I don't... I, unless they say you have to go away because we need a stand in because there's lighting equipment that could fall on your head or endanger your life or whatever. Right. Um, to me, the, the, the whole joy of my job is not to escape to your trailer, your Winnebago and do that. It's to be in the place where the stuff is happening and just being around it on the set all the time. I think that it, it makes for much more concentrated way of working and keeps you in the zone if you like of, of doing it whereas as soon as you go out and then you're sitting on you know looking at your phone or ipad or reading a book or whatever it it somehow takes you out of what what you're doing so i just found it much more pleasurable to to work that way um, and i've always done that if a crew sees an actor who is there and ready when they're doing their work 
in order for you to be able to do your work, if you can call what I do work, then there is no gap between, okay, now we have to go and get the actors ready and get them out of their Winnebago's and, you know, get them from the real world back into the, to the, the play world. You're, you're there and ready to go. And I think that that's, it makes for a more efficient way of, of making things. But that's, you know, that's individual to me. One of the, um, you know, you mentioned sort of channeling whatever you needed to in order to act against this uh, fictional Asgard that you were constructing. Um, you also get to interact a lot with this uh, gator Loki that they have. Uh, you, in fact, grasp him by the tail at one point. I've seen, I've seen the photos of the blue plushie they had on set, but I'm just wondering if what your Gator Loki impressions were. What was it like working with that thing? Well, it, it looked like the equivalent of three stuffed cushions sewn together in various sizes to approximate the shape of a soft, soft toy alligator. So at least we had that. It wasn't just, you know, look at this dot or look at that tennis ball stuck on a, stuck on a stick. So at least we had that. But, you know, it's, it felt very much like being a five-year-old when you're walking around and going, you know, have a, have a look at this. This is the magic book that's going to, you know, if you open this book, something's going to happen and pop out. You invest something, you know, with your imagination, because it, it's uh, the soft toy was about as remote from an alligator as you could possibly get. <laughs> um, and and my last question, uh, another co-star of yours in this episode is, of course, Owen Wilson. And uh, oh. you posted this adorable photo of you guys from behind the scenes. But I was just wondering what it was like for you to work work with Owen. He is he is as quintessentially Owen Wilsonish in real life as everything that I anticipated that he might be from his screen persona. There was, he is as laid back and casual and drop dead dry humor. Um, so, and he also, you know, like me, as you can probably tell, uh, Joanna, I like to gab and he likes to talk and, you know, chew the wind up as much as, as anybody. So he's an old gas bag like I am. So <laughs> I, I just absolutely loved being around in his company. Thank you so much for uh, for gas bagging my direction these last <laughs> few minutes. It was a pure, pure joy. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joanna, in Oakland. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. All bye. Right, bye. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. 